this being my final weekend together, we were trying to figure out a text or a topic to go out on. So somebody suggested, yeah, I've got, how about persecution? I thought, it's not quite what I had in mind. Somebody else chimed in, yeah, an affliction. Okay, anything else here? How about final judgment? Okay, we've got the trifecta going on. It's actually not the case, but uh, it's what we find in our text today. And that's one of the things I love about this church and why you will continue to do well. We just preach what's in the word. We've just finished up our study in 1 Thessalonians, and we're transitioning to the second letter to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians. And this is a young church that's experiencing loads of persecution and difficulty. We find their story of how they started in Acts chapter 17. So if you need a little refresher, you can go back to the series in Acts and and see that. Or we kind of, at the very beginning of our 1 Thessalonians study, walked through the early days of this church and how they were founded by Paul and Silas and Timothy. We're not going to recover that today, but it's important to note that this church continued to face opposition and persecution. And Paul and Silas and Timothy's desire wasn't just that they would come to know Jesus. They desired for them to follow Jesus, to continue to become more like him. And so they would check back in with them and continue to disciple them along the way. And not long after his first letter was written, the second letter, uh, Paul finds out that the church is persecution has gotten even worse. Not only that, that the, the Christians there are struggling. They're They're scared and confused about Jesus' return. And so he writes this book to encourage them and to continue to clarify things for them. But much of 2 Thessalonians follows the same thrust of his first letter. Most likely, Paul is writing this book from Corinth. We know that he was there about 18 months. And it's the last recorded spot that we find Paul and Silas and Timothy together. In fact, that's where they show up here in our first verse. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 1 there this morning. It says, Paul and Silvanus, or as we would know him better, probably Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all throughout this book, you're going to find three words used over and over and over again. We, our, and us. They're used some 30 times throughout this book. And it's not till the last uh, part of this letter that Paul actually puts his stamp on the letter and and signs it in his own uh, handwriting. In, In a sense, to validate the letter, but also as a part of what he would do. And also to show that this wasn't an imposter bringing some other truth But it shows us the value, once again, as we see Paul and Silas and Timothy ministering together and the value of a plurality in leadership. But his greeting also is very clear to show us who is leading this church in Thessalonica. It's not Paul. It's not any one person. It's not rooted in somebody uh, there in Thessalonica. See what he says in verse 1? to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians and you compare it to this first chapter in 2 Thessalonians, it's almost as though they just photocopied it over. So much similarity throughout it, except for one minor change that shows up in this first verse. Instead of saying God the Father, it says God our Father. The ESV will actually use that same phrase again at the end of verse 2. 
It's as though he wanted to remind them of the personal nature of our God, but also to remind them of who is leading the church. Now, the word church that's used here is a very general church, a word, ecclesia. It simply means a gathering or an assembly. So you could have a Girl Scout ecclesia, right? You could have a political ecclesia or a sports ecclesia. It's just a gathering of people, but something sets this gathering of people apart. They are found in God. So who is leading their church? It's God. It's not any person. God is the one. God is their father. Jesus is their leader, and Jesus is leading their church. And church, it's no different for us today, is it? Jesus continues to be the one who is the head of our church. May we never forget this truth. He goes on in verse 2 to say, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we talked about grace in the opening of 1 Thessalonians. It's this unmerited favor that God bestows on our behalf. But it's not just an attribute about God's character. It's something active. Grace is the activity that God has done and does on our behalf. And that grace produces something in us. This all-sovereign, all-knowing, completely in control God invites us into relationship with him. And in that, we now are linked and in the family with this God that is in control of everything. So when our world seems out of control, we can still hold peace because our God is a God of peace. In fact, John 14, 27, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. I know all of us have seen those believers that are in the midst of something difficult, a hard situation, and yet in the midst of all that difficulty, there is a sense of inner peace that they carry that just doesn't seem to make sense. It reminds me of Philippians chapter four, verse six and seven. And Paul is talking to these believers and he says, hey, you know what? There are going to be things in this life that could cause you to worry. Things that go outside of your control, outside of the way you had planned it. Rather than worrying about it, what you should do is you should pray about it. You should give it to God. And what's he say happens? What's the byproduct of that? In verse 7, he goes on to say, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about, that this peace, which doesn't make sense in a current situation that's hard. It doesn't make sense in our world's economy. But in God's economy, it makes sense. It's something that goes beyond our comprehension. But that's how big our God is. Church, I wonder even this morning as you sit here, are you experiencing God's peace in your life? If not, maybe there's something that you're trying to continue to hold on to to control that God even this morning would invite you to give over to him. It's a good reminder for this young church in turmoil in Thessalonica. Verse three, he goes on to say, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Only fitting is, is uh, this idea that something fits perfectly. Maybe think of it as a tailor fashioning a, a jacket for somebody. And as they're handcrafting this, they're taking measurements and they put the fabric on and pin it together and make those tweaks so that by the time it's done, it fits perfectly. It fits like a glove. Paul is giving thanks, which is only fitting. 
It's as though he was designed to give thanks, to give praise, to give glory to God. In fact, when Paul recognizes where God's at work and he acknowledges that and gives God thanks, he's fitting perfectly into the way that God has designed him to function, to live, to worship. He recognizes where God is at work. And how is God at work? Verse 3 goes on to share that. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Now as a church, we talk all the time that we want to be a church that comes together to know Jesus, to become more like him, and to help others do the same. Our intention is not just that we would come to know Jesus, but that we would become more like him. That we would continue to have our attitude and actions function more and more in step with who Jesus is. And as we look here, we see the church in Thessalonica is becoming more like Jesus. How? Their faith is greatly enlarged. Now, how in the world do you get your faith greatly enlarged? Do we just go and try to bulk up on our faith? I'm just going to get shredded in faith. Like, is it just, is it this work that I just try to muster up greater faith? How is their faith growing even greater? It's greatly enlarged. Well, first of all, what is faith? Faith is trust. It's belief. But it's not only that. It's belief in action. James 2 tells us this. He tells us to show our faith, to put our faith into action. Our faith is active. Our faith works itself out through our attitudes and our action. It's not just something I muster up on my own. Maybe to help me understand this a little bit, I need to think rather of it being something that I grow in my knowledge of to something that works its way out more linearly. Maybe it's more about keeping in step with Jesus. All throughout scripture, it uses a metaphor that the Christian life is a walk. It's a race. It's continued steps. And the reality is this, church. Every day and throughout my whole life, I will have an opportunity with millions of decisions. Throughout my life, I will have millions of opportunities that come my way. And in each decision and in each opportunity, I will be faced with a decision. Will I choose to put my faith in Jesus and follow what he's doing in that opportunity, in that decision? Or will I tr try to blaze my own trail? So maybe in your life, you come upon a day and you're faced with a decision to surrender something. And in faith, you choose to obey and surrender and take a step. Maybe throughout your life, God brings something and he's asking you to put your trust in him in that. In, in faith, you obey and you take a step and you put your trust in him. Maybe at times it's to take a step of obedience and you take a step of faith. Maybe at times it's to share something with someone or maybe at times it's to do something for someone and all the while you're faced with a decision. Will I choose to continue to take a step of faith with Jesus or will I dig in my heels and try and do things on my own way? And as you take small steps of faith with Jesus, at some point you get in your journey and you look back and you think, how in the world did I get here? I would have never thought that I could have done this. But by trusting in Jesus and taking steps of faith with him in his power, it's led me to a place of greater faith I could have never imagined. Church, big faith is built on small steps of obedience. 
There's an author that wrote a story that I think sums this up beautifully. Her name is Lynn Austin. And in the book, Candle in the Darkness, she summarizes a conversation between two characters. And in that conversation, this is said, faith doesn't come in a bushel basket. It comes one step at a time. Decide to trust him for one little thing today. And before you know it, you'll find out he is so trustworthy, you'll be putting your whole life in his hands. Church, I wonder if there's something in your life that God has been leading you to do, stretching you to do, inviting you to trust him with, that you continue to hold on to. Maybe this morning is that moment to surrender, to take that step of obedience. Where have you been digging in your heels, trying to follow your own plan rather than follow Jesus? You say, but Josh, faith in this way, it's risky. I know, I get it. But Josh, what if it doesn't turn out the way I planned? I know, it seems risky, doesn't it? Josh, it's scary, I know, I get it. It takes me outside of my comfort zone, I get it. But we can trust God. God has never let us down yet and he will not let us down. So church, even while we talk about this, maybe there's something that comes to mind that God's been asking you to do. And this week is the week to put that faith into action. Maybe jot it down in your notes right now or talk to your life group about it. Take that small step of obedience in faith. This only happens with his power. Verse 11 is going to remind us of that. It's not something we do on our own or muster up. John 15 tells us that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So our faith grows as we take steps with Jesus in his power, abiding in him and obeying what he's asking us to do. But what about our love? He says that the love grows ever greater. How does our love grow greater? I remember years ago, I was working with someone uh, that was particularly difficult for me to love. I don't know if you have anybody like that in your life. It was tough for me to care about them or care for them. I remember one specific day, it had been a long day, and we just got out of a meeting at night, and I'm walking back to the parking lot, and I see their car in the parking lot. As I look at their car, their tire is flat. I'm not talking a little low, I'm talking the rim is touching the ground. And inside, I thought, yes! It just felt so good. They had it coming for them. And it was just this thing of like, finally, the frustration and the vindication, some of the wrongs I feel like I've experienced, they're going to have to deal with through this flat tire. I did not slash that tire. But had I done it, I'm sure God would have been like, well, yeah, that was justified, right? (laughs) And I remember the spirit kind of in my heart saying, Josh, you should go let them know that their tire is flat. And I thought, absolutely, I can't wait to see the look on their face. Glad we're on the same page, God. As I'm walking into the building, the spirit keeps speaking to my heart and says, Josh, um, I want you to tell them about their tire, and I want you to ask for their keys so you can help change it. And I remember thinking, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. We're on different playing fields here. God, do I need to get my list out and start to show you all the ways I feel like I've been wrong, all the things that are difficult to love about them? And he just kept working on my heart through that whole journey back in the building. I get inside, and I see they're in a conversation, a pretty deep conversation. So I just went up, and I said, hey, can I grab your keys? You got a flat tire, and went out. Start working on that flat tire and I'm turning the lug nuts on it and frustrated and God's continuing to work on my heart. And he comes out and we finish the tire together. 
When he's done, he looks over at me and he says, Josh, if this were your tire, I don't know that I would have done the same thing. And I did not tell him everything I just told you. What I realized is this love growing even greater in our lives is a work of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit to help us grow. And it comes as I'm learning to trust God. It comes as I'm learning to listen to God. And it comes as I take a step to obey God. Church, we grow in our faith and we grow in our love when we learn to trust God. When we learn to listen to God, when we learn to take a step of obedience with God. In verse 40, he goes on to say, Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the church, churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. There's two words that he refers to here in this verse that we've got to get a handle on. In verse 5, he'll go on to summarize those as suffering. But the first word is persecution. This literally means attacks from the outside. It's a, it's a focused word. It, it means being persecuted for your faith. Several years ago, I was taking a trip overseas to work with some church planners and some pastors in an, another country. And just two weeks before I set out on that trip, I got an email with some news that one of the pastors had been taken out of their home. They had been tied up and beaten and drugged through the streets and eventually shot and murdered for their faith. I remember getting on that plane going, I don't know what to say to these pastors. I've never experienced anything like this. Got back and after several weeks, emailed a couple of the other leaders that were there and it took a little bit for them to respond. And one responded back. He said, sorry for the delay. Had some difficult things. You can pray for our church. We had two of the members that were pulled out of the church and beaten and their Bibles were burned in front of them. Church, all over the world, there's persecution taking place for believers because they're choosing to take steps of obedience for Jesus. And that's what he's speaking of in this first word. But then he gives a second word as well. He says affliction. This is a much more general word. It's the idea of being pressed into a narrow place. This could be any kind of difficulty that comes into our life. Maybe it's a challenge with another person. This could be difficulty in your job or maybe difficulty with your health. It's a sense, it's a pressure that arises from trials or trouble. And Christians, we experience that, don't we? There is suffering, there is difficult things that come in our life. And as believing, believers, suffering may come from the form of persecution. It may come in the form of hardship, but be sure of this. Following Jesus will not be easy. It will cost you something. Some of you right now are sitting here going, up. No, it's been pretty easy, pretty comfortable. It doesn't seem like it's cost me anything. I would ask, are you following Jesus? Are you taking those steps of obedience to follow him? Because there will be opposition in your school. There will be opposition in your work. Doesn't mean you have to be a jerk about it. But as you take steps of obedience and faith for Jesus, you will face difficulty. Notice where he says the faith is at in verse 4. He says the perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecu persecutions and afflictions. It's not off in some bubble in some padded safe spot. Faith is growing in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of challenges. One of the ways that God grows our faith is through stretching and challenging situations. You show me someone that is walking through a difficult situation 
and has chosen to lean into God through that because they have no other option but to trust him and lean on him in his power. And I will show you someone that is growing in their faith. Verse five, he goes on to say, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. As you first read this, it seems that somehow your suffering makes you worthy for the kingdom of God. But that's not what they're saying in this passage. They're, tr- they're saying and giving a de- deeper perspective of suffering. The reality is this, that God wastes nothing. And even in the midst of persecution, hardship, and affliction, he uses that to shape us for his glory. We often think of suffering as, as punishment. And for sure, when, when we choose to sin, there are consequences that come from sin. But this passage is not relating their suffering to punishment. But it is uh, giving us a purpose for that suffering. It, and that shows up in two small words, so that. So that expresses a purpose. In this broken world, God will use hardship for his purposeful work. God is bigger than our suffering, bigger than persecution, bigger than our difficulties. And he will actually use that to shape us. It says, so that you will be considered worthy. And the Greek that's used here is to declare worthy. Not to make worthy, but to declare worthy. Or another way that we could say it, to deem entirely deserving. Not based on what you've done. At the end of this chapter, he's going to remind us it's your belief, your faith, your trust in what Jesus has done for you on, your beh- on our behalf. But his worthiness has been bestowed on us. We are worthy to walk in the kingdom. And now he starts to show us how to walk in a worthy way in the kingdom. God is using the difficulties to shape us. The same kind of principle is shown in 1 Peter verse 1, or chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, in this, in what? In the hope of salvation that we have in Christ, in what Christ has done on our behalf, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being even more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's telling us that when things start to heat up and difficulties and trials come, God can use that to bring about what's under the surface out into our lives. So that this masterful God who is shaping us This metal worker who's purifying this metal can take that dross that has separated and scoop it off. In the same way, God uses difficulties in our life to shape us and to refine us, to show us what it means to walk worthy. And it produces something beautiful if we yield to what he's doing in our life. When I think of someone that's been a picture of this, Instantly, there is a family that comes to mind in our church. For over two years, one of our pastors, Jason Knott, has been working and battling ALS. And it has ravaged his body. It's been a difficult journey, and yet they have continued to lean into Jesus. He and Melinda continue to walk together to glorify God in and through this. 
fact, it came to a point where they had paramedics there to help resuscitate him. And after Jason was giving an update, these are his very words that he wrote. As I surface to consciousness, my lungs are filled with sweet air. Each welcome breath is aided by a bag and paramedic. Every breath, a gift from God. Breathe in. It's God's gift of love. I have much to be thankful for. And then he goes on to share about the things that he's grateful for and things that are happening in their life. What a beautiful picture of Jesus flowing through his life. He goes on to say this in another update. God's love is warm, nourishing sunshine. I am a wilting plant uprooted and carefully moved into his delightful rays, now able to receive the love of God more than ever before. Church, God is bigger than suffering. God can use suffering in our lives. Maybe when difficult things come in our life, rather than saying, why? Why me, God? We can say, what? God, what are you trying to do in and through this situation? How? How can I walk with you in and through this? Verse 6, he goes on to say, After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. It's important to remember that God is righteous. God is just. Only a sinless person can set a standard with which to judge. So that pretty well quickly takes me out of the picture, right? I'm not sinless. I could try to choose to repay evil with evil, but where is that going to get me? Instead, I can choose to trust God and walk faithfully in the midst of difficulty and persecution and affliction, understanding he could even use that to shape my life. Because it's hard for us to understand God judging others. But God does not do this out of an evil heart like we do. We would judge in our desire to pay back out of hurt, or out of selfish anger, or out of evil vengeance, or out of painful grudges. But God does not hold that posture. God, as our judge, is good. He is fair. He is just. He is righteous. And he will judge justly. In fact, he uses the word repay. It literally means to give back. It's as though God is taking the evil that we have contrived in our own heart and dished out and taking that evil and giving it back. To those who have not leaned to him as their righteous judge, they will be judged. You see glimpses of this, pictures of this in the Old Testament. Pharaoh, of the evil in his heart, goes to try and annihilate the Jews, takes the firstborn and has them drowned in the river, and continues to resist everything that God is asking. As Moses comes before, his heart hardens, and he digs in his heels, continues to oppress and enslave the Jewish people until God finally gets him to a point where he begrudgingly lets them go, only again to chase after them. What happens? In his own evil, as he's chasing them, he heads into the river, and the river becomes his very grave. What about Haman in the book? Has a scheme to wipe out the Jews so confident and arrogant, he builds gallows in his own courtyard for the Jews. And yet his scheme gets flipped on end and he hangs on those very gallows. Justice is coming. And he goes on to say in Isaiah 66, 15 and 16, very similar imagery to what he's about to say in verse 7 through 9. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, And to use us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Jesus will be revealed. It's talking about the day of the Lord, the judgment that's coming. And God can't just overlook evil. He can't pretend like it doesn't exist. He is just, he is righteous. Maybe a way for us to understand this would be to think of it in this terms. Think of going to this incredible restaurant. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's like top of the line. And you and us, all of our friends, family are all there. And this place is bringing course after course. This is an impressive restaurant. We're not talking $100 plates or $200 plates. It's far beyond that. Every time you put your fork down, a waiter's there to grab it and put a new one there. They're continuing to adjust your plate and, and adjust your napkin all along the way. It's magnificent. And at the end, the waitress comes and they give the bill and you say, hey, guys, I got it. I got it. And you put it on the table and you take your napkin and you just cover it. You say, there, the bill's been covered. And you get up and you start to walk along. Everybody else, the whole party starts to get up. And as you're getting close to the front door, the waitress is running to stop you. And the host is there to say, you can't leave. And the manager comes. They said, you still have a debt. And you say, no, I've got that covered. We're just going to pretend like that has been covered. That, that, that never happened. They say, no, someone has to pay this bill. And you go back and you start to look at this thing. And you realize you could never do enough dishes to cover this. You look at your bank account and you realize it's never going to happen that way. Somebody's going to have to rescue you. In our lives, we have a debt of sin. And that debt has to be dealt with. We could choose to do it on our own, but we will never be able to. And that's why this righteous judge has come on our behalf for us and for those who place their faith in him. He will be the one that has paid their debt. But notice what he says. He says that there will be those who do not obey the gospel. I don't often think of the gospel in terms of obedience, but he calls us to repent, to obey. He calls us to put our faith in him. And yet there will be those who willfully reject this. And what's the penalty? The penalty of eternal destruction. But look at how he describes what that penalty and destruction is in verse 9 away from the presence of the Lord. In essence, he's giving them what they want. They've rejected God. They don't want to enter into a relationship with God, and God gives them an eternity away from his presence. Verse 7, though, shows us that this judgment is not just negative. It's positive for those who have placed their trust in him. There is not a judgment he has already dealt with it. In fact, he tells them that he will give relief, rest. The Greek actually is a loosening. I've heard it described as a bow and arrow and the tension that comes on that arrow. And in this world, we face difficulty and persecution and hardship, but there is a day when the Lord will come and will take that bow and release the tension. How it is now will not be how it always will be. Verse 10 goes on to say, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. This trust and faith in him gives us hope. One day it's going to be glorious. To get a little more of a picture of this judge that's coming, we can look at Revelation 
In chapter 5, it talks about the day of the Lord. And when Jesus is announced in Revelation 5, he's announced as this victorious lion. But then John goes on to paint a picture of how Jesus is seen. And he describes him as this slaughtered lamb. This savior that came as a sacrifice for us. Revelation 19 describes, again, this King Jesus riding in on a white horse. But notice the description of his robe. There's blood on that robe. And the blood is his own. Because he has paid the price with his own life on the cross. This is the righteous judge we serve. And notice again in, in, in uh, Revelation, it continues to say he carries a sword, but not in his hand. The sword is in his mouth because he is true and just. He's a symbol of him being the definition of righteousness. He's the standard for good and evil. And we can put our hope in that, but it also gives us an incredible motivation, church, doesn't it? To go out and share with those who do not know him. The reality of where an eternity will lead and to share the hope that we have in Jesus. This letter isn't just saying endure. It's saying that something glorious is going to take place. When he comes back, he will be marveled at. My family and I took a trip last year to the Grand Canyon. I'd seen it as a kid and we'd seen pictures and told our kids about it. But as we pulled up and pulled in the parking lot, you still can't quite describe what you're going to encounter. So I get out of the car first, and my son's following me, and my kids, are, the girls are kind of coming behind, and we kind of stagger out in different speeds because somehow some of my kids lost their shoe while sitting in a seat. How do you lose your shoe while sitting in a seat? Buckled in, but it happens. So I get to the edge of this canyon first, and I get to the canyon and look out. I just go, wow. And my son's not far from behind me and he comes up and he can't help but express the same thing verbally. Wow. And I wish I would have had a camera because as each one in our family came, they just couldn't hold it in to just exclaim, it's marvelous. You look at this creation and the beauty is just breathtaking. It's something so powerful that inside you, it just ushers out this praise. And if this is done in creation, imagine the day when we see face to face this marvelous creator, how marvelous it will be, how incredible it will be. God is using this time to shape us into the person he wants us to be. And he closes out with a prayer. What he desires to continue to pray for this young church. To this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is at work to produce something beautiful even in the midst of the difficulties we encounter in this life. Something that displays his faith and his power, and his goodness. He's at work to do something glorious and full of grace, and we get to experience that. I think the best way to close out this message would be to share an illustration 
that Brian shared some 20 years ago and yet has continued to stick in my mind over and over again. He said, imagine if you will, we're in San Diego and we're in the harbor and there are two boats that are setting out for sea. And the first boat is this cruise ship. And everybody boarding this ship has expectations of what they'll encounter on this trip. They're thinking as they get on there of what they're going to eat at the buffets, of the games that are going to happen, of the smooth sailing that's before them, of the entertainment. They've packed accordingly and they're getting onto this boat with this expectation. But right next to this cruise ship sits another ship. And people are also boarding this ship to set out to sea. But this is not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. And when they depart the harbor, they head into open waters, they're heading into battle. And everyone boarding this ship has a different mentality. They're going with a different expectation. They're not thinking of the buffets or complaining about the food on the ship. When the water starts to get rough at sea, they're ready, they know what they're walking into. Imagine, if you will, if somebody from the cruise ship accidentally got on board the battleship. Imagine how confused they would be, how frustrated they would be in the midst of it. And church, what if for some of us, we've had that same thought, that same expectation. We thought Jesus was going to be our cruise director that would follow our plans, that would give us all of our hopes and dreams, that would make us happy, that would continue to show us where that buffet is and keep us entertained. But Jesus told us that we will have trouble. In fact, John 16, 33 says, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have come, have overcome the world. In this world we will face hardship. We will face difficulty. But in the midst of that difficulty... Our glorious God is at work to produce and do something in our lives for his glory. And one day we will experience the fullness of all that he is. And that is a reason to hope. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you give us things that walk right in the midst of our lives through this book that is alive. Thank you for one another, the chance you give us to encourage each other and walk with each other. God, we pray that we would be a church that continues to grow in our faith, a church that grows even greater in our love. God, thank you for the hope that we find in the midst of the challenges and persecutions in this life. God, thank you for the reminder of what's at stake. God, burden our hearts for the lost. Help us to continue to share this message of hope with those that do not know you. And thank you for giving us a glimpse into the end of the story. What magnificent hope you bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.